You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Craig Shirley. He's a terrific author. I have several of his books. He's a longtime public relations professional, a winning Republican strategist. And that's no doubt. He's got the best stories. His books are terrific. Titles include Reagan's Revolution, the untold story of the campaign that started it all. My favorite, Rendezvous with Destiny, Ronald Reagan and the campaign that changed America. December 1941, 31 Days that Changed America and Saved the World. And his newest book, which came in February of 2022. April 1945, The Hinge of History. Mr. Shirley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an honor. Thank you, Robert. It's an honor for me, too. Thank you very much. Let's get started thank with you, some. Chris. <laughs> Chris Spangle, yes. We have a hard time starting these history podcasts because Mr. Spangle has lots of questions before we get to the actual questions. <laughs> more, more power to him. You know, if you have intellectual curiosity, that's good. Let's talk about something uh, you wrote just a week ago before we talk about your books and your career. I'm fascinated by both. You wrote a terrific article for Fox News about the relationship between Queen Elizabeth II and President Ronald Reagan. Obviously, the Queen's passing is the catalyst for writing it. But how close was their friendship and and how much did they influence each other? Uh, Robert, they were close from the first time they met and they exchanged correspondence many, many times. They met together in London, in Washington, and at the Reagan Ranch out in uh, California. They also met on the uh, Queen's uh, Yacht uh, Britannica. So I don't know how many times offhand they met, but it was at least half a dozen times, if not more. And although she never said, uh, she knew 15 presidents, going back to Harry Truman. 
She never said, she wisely never said who her favorite president was, but historians and writers and scribes and observers will say, will tell you that her favorite president was Ronald Reagan. They bonded together uh, in part because, well, first of all, they were both uh, conservative. They were, they, they, they were, you know, in, in, in behaviorally conservative, not just politically, ideologically, but behaviorally, you know, not, you know, she was never, imagine this, in 70 years, Cameras are on her all the time, all the time. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, she could be caught, you know, dropping her handkerchief in the, in the wrong queue or something like this. But she never, ever, ever, she was never caught off base. She never was caught with another man. She never was caught, you know, drinking too much or did drugs or anything like this. She was always cordial and professional and intelligent and capable and petite and, and just she was everything good we can hope for in a, in, a, in, a, in a world subject or individual. And Reagan was the same, although, you know, he had a couple of, he had one divorce, which she didn't want. She wanted it. She, she wanted it because she was having an affair with Lou Ayers on the, uh, on her uh, movie. Um, uh, she made um, about Jane Wyman. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Thank you. What, what was what was the name of that movie about the blind girl? Um, oh shoot, I can't remember. But Lou Ayers was in that movie too, and she started having an affair with him. She the Helen Keller. Get, Helen Keller. No, movie? no, no, no. She won an Academy Award for it. Do I'll think about it in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, she won an Academy Award for it too. I'm having a senior moment. I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's because I'm senior citizen. Anyway, going far afield here, but. Um, Reagan was was courtly and gentlemanly and funny and uh, kind and honorable and all those things that she expected in men. And so they they quite naturally, they were of like mind. So they quite naturally bonded together. Especially they loved morning horseback riding and uh, they loved the out both loved the outer doors. So they rode together in California. They rode together in London. They rode together in Washington. Uh, and they got along quite well. It, her letters to him, and there were, there were numerous letters, she would sign it, dear, she would open it by saying, Dear Mr. President, and then close it by saying, Your friend Elizabeth. Not not Queen Elizabeth, not, you know, no honor, no honorific, no title, no uh, royalty, no nothing, just Elizabeth. I thought that was quite charming, actually, for her to be have such confidence to be able to just say, just Elizabeth not, and nothing else. I loved your story, and I'll I'll put a link to it uh, when we post this podcast. It's it's a terrific article. Uh, but thank you. Thank you, you know, when I was doing some research and trying to get all my notes together and and things to do this podcast, and we're talking with author and historian Craig Shirley. It was funny. I almost completely forgot to include the recent passing of Mikhail Gorbachev. Yeah, just completely something? overshadowed. You know, it's hard to fathom unless you were around in the 80s. He was the the man of the world, the most famous person, got all the accolades, and he just kind of died like an afterthought and then completely overshadowed by the Queen's path. Please, yeah, I please talk I, actually, a little I wrote an op-ed on that, too. <laughs> please, talk. I haven't seen that one. I'll look it up. But please talk about the relationship between Gorbachev and President Reagan, because you talk about two people who changed the world. Well, Robert, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. What I said in my op-ed was is that the accolades and the hosannas and all this for Rose- for Gorbachev were overstated. Uh, Gorbachev didn't end the Cold War. Reagan won the Cold War. A series of events. There was the, the the military coup, and there was Chernobyl, and there were the, the Russian infrastructure was crumbling. 
and the Russian economy is crumbling. And then Reagan was pressuring him heavily from the West with everything from SDI to selling him shoddy uh, oil uh, cleaning machinery to, to you know, the, the, the Radio for Europe and the, the bully pulpit, which was quite powerful then. Uh, but it, he used all these things and more to and SDI. The, terror, the Soviets were terrified of SDI. And Reagan knew how to use it. He knew how to hold his cars. He knew how to run a, you know, uh, buff, buff uh, Gorbachev, you know, out of position, and and he and he did so. And I, I always imagine after Reykjavik, when uh, the negotiations broke down because Reagan wouldn't give up on SDI, and and the deal was we'd get rid of all of our MX class, all of our Pershing two, uh, all the Soviet missiles and all the U.S. missiles. We would withdraw from Europe. If Reagan would give up SDI, and Reagan said no, and I can't, I just imagine Gorbachev going back to his generals in Moscow, and and they're exclaiming incredulity. Oh, wait a minute, Mikhail, you, you wouldn't get rid of the missiles because of a theory? <laughs> well, that's I mean, true. That's didn't he? Didn't he say to Shevard Nazi? I read, and I'm I'm guessing you read it, or or have talked to him about it personally. But Ken Edelman's book. Reagan at Reykjavik, which is terrific. Yes. It's a great book. Yes. Uh, I love those I, yeah, insider I know accounts. Ken, I know Ken well. Where Gorbachev's like, they can't even make, they don't have, they're not have the capacity to make toothpaste. Like we can't make enough toothpaste for our, our, our Russian citizens or Soviet right. citizens. And we're going to compete with SDI. That's the, you really get a sense of how, how broken down and inefficient that communist system was. Yes, it had come to the end of its rope. You know, Margaret Thatcher was right. She once said the problem with socialism is you had, you run out of other people's money. And the <laughs> Soviet Union had run out of other people's money. And, of course, we had propped it up with grain, with credit guarantees and grain guarantees and things like that. And all we did was promulgate the failing Soviet system when we should have left well enough alone or put stress on it, as Reagan did, and pushed them over the cliff. Do you think Reagan was proved correct in his entire oh, sure. approach towards Absolutely. the Soviet Union, even though obviously towards the end, you know, it changed as opposed to, you know, 81, 82? We, yes, it changed at the end, obviously. Yes, it changed, Robert. It did. And, and the left-wing intelligentsia, you know, gave Gorbachev the Nobel Peace Prize and gave Nor Gorbachev Man of the Year and this and that. And the other. Man of the Decade, Time Man Magazine. Of the decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But it was Reagan who deserved, who actually deserved it. It's just because they're left wingers and because they despise Ronald Reagan because he was conservative. You know, you, you know, people don't realize he did exactly what he said he was going to do in the 1980 campaign. He he denounced he denounced salt. He proposed salt too, and he proposed, look, we won't get Soviets to the negotiating negotiating table until we build up our arms so we can force their hand and get them to real concessions. And so that's what he did. He built up our military, built up you know, the army. He built up our defense forces. He built up, our, he, he deployed uh, Pershing II missiles and MX missiles in uh, in Western Europe. He increased the number of Soviet launched uh, submarines. You know, he, you know, the whole goal at the time was a 600 ship Navy, mm -hmm. which he achieved so that he could patrol both oceans. All these things he did and more to, to build up America's defenses. And then he got the Soviets baking in their boots to the negotiating table. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. And it would you'd have to be a scholar of the period or to be alive 
I was born in 67, so I remember the Reagan years, of course, very, very well. To to understand or include in any analysis or evaluation the ridiculously large and just quite frankly ridiculous nuclear power and nuclear weapons protest and nuclear freeze and oh, Reagan's going to Reagan's going to start president reagan's going to start a world war three i mean there was all this hysteria i mean not just by not just by people who were on mushrooms but by scholars and other people who all thought reagan was going to destroy the planet all being funded by the kgb all those nuclear freeze movements in in united states and in western europe were all being funded by the kgb uh, under the table. The FBI uh, documented it. They also documented that the KGB had paid for the anti-war protests, the anti-Vietnam war protests of the student uh, student marchers in the 1960s. Is it is it is it ironic to look back and and all the hyperbolization of social media and everything we do now with the 24-hour news service and all the things. That, and then there's people who look back with, you know, I miss the Reagan Republican Party. And you want to go, but yeah, but 40 years ago, you said he was going to destroy the planet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, there's a new movie out. Speaking of that, Robert, there's a new movie out called, uh, you know, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Mm-hmm. And in, in there, Dan Aykroyd is on a, is on a phone and he says, yeah, you remember the '80s, the Reagan years, good economy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we want to talk a little bit more about President Reagan later on in the Leaders and Legends podcast. But reading through your bio materials, you seem to be like a lot of folks I know, and that is, you caught the political bug early. What yes. are some of your first political memories? How far back you want to go? Well, I was born in '67, as I said, and I can remember. Nixon winning in 72 and then of course Watergate summer in 73. So that's as early well, back as I can go. How, okay. I know you can beat that. <laughs> I was politically active early. My parents were charter members of the New York State Conservative Party. But this is this is 60 years ago and New York was a far different state then than it is now. Now it's the you know now it's taking central. But then there was a vital and active conservative party it held the balance of power in the state. If you got a conservative party endorsement together with the Republican Party, you could win in many congressional districts in New York. And as a matter of fact, in 1970, yeah, James Buckley was Jim Buckley. That's right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't the Republican. He wasn't the Democrat. He was the conservative. So but anyway, my memory goes back to 1964 when I was uh, my parents had me distributing uh, presidential material door to door for Barry Goldwater. So, you know, so, so I, I did it. I did it. I was already activated. Flash forward years later to 1977, I was interning in the United States Senate and I was in the Russell office building and I go flying down a flight of stairs one afternoon with a message for my senator over on the Senate floor. And I go past this elderly man who's struggling down the stairs, limping all by himself. Uh, who's limping down the stairs and struggling. And I, I said, I, as I go flying past him, I said, I know that man. I turned around and it's Barry Goldwater. Mm. I, said to my, I said to myself, well, I got to introduce myself. So I go up to him all flustered, and, you know, as you would expect from a 19-year-old. Hello, Senator Goldwater. My name is Craig Shirley. I went door to door for you in 1964 in Circus, New York. Bye, 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 bye. You know, like all this stuff. And he looks at me, gets a twinkle in his eye, and he smiles, and he says, 
that you got a lot of doors slammed in your face. <laughs> and he was actually right. I did. <laughs> so that, that's that. 1964 is, is I think, as far back. Although I, I would tell you, 1960, I have a vague recollection. I was then four years old, so I have a vague recollection. We were sitting at the dinner dining room, you know, dinner table, and my father went around and asked the three of us, three three children, who who we wanted to be president. And my brother said Nixon, my sister said Nixon, and I said John Kennedy. And he said he said why? And I said, well, because I think he's better looking than Richard Nixon. Uh, and he laughed. He says, you know what, Craig? A lot of people are going to vote that way tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, the the Goldwater campaign in 64 where he loses handily to uh, Lyndon Johnson would you consider that the nadir of the modern conservative movement or well, more of a catalyst to what to the good times that come behind it's a it ca- it's a catalyst it's a catalyst there was a saying after the 64 campaign we went around saying look 27 million people can't all be wrong we knew we were right. We knew we were right. We knew we, we we had truth on our side. We had logic on our side. We had intelligence on our side. That the 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 big the great society, the, the New Deal was was lied to the American people. Uh, that uh, collectivism doesn't didn't work anywhere, and it certainly wouldn't work in the, wouldn't work in the United States. And uh, Nixon didn't so much prove that. Seventeen eighteen. Uh, 64. Yeah. 16 years later, Reagan proved that is that his ideas were better than Carter's ideas. And I still believe that today. Did you would you consider yourself a a Goldwater conservative? And if so, how did you how did you make it through the Nixon years? Or was that much difference between them? No. Yes, there was a lot of difference between them. Uh, Yes, I consider myself a Goldwater Reagan constitutional libertarian conservative i believe fervently in the privacy of the individual more than once in my life somebody's asked me some question and i've said to them that's none of your business that's none of your business you know a guy said to me that we had a dispute about the property taxes on our house so we went before the tax board and of course they all got them gave themselves you know one percent two percent three percent interest and they gave me a 45% interest rate over a three-year period. And and the guy smartly says, well, but you do have the nicest house in the county. We live in an old antique house in mm-hmm. uh, Essex County. And I told him, I, I looked at him dead in the eye. I said, you know, that's none of your business. You know, I have a very refined sense of privacy. And I guess that's what motivates me as much as anything. The idea that the government could look into my checking account is so abhorrent to me. This caused me to think, you know, you know, there there are times when I really want to leave this country. I want to sell everything, liquidate everything, get on my sailboat and and sail down to Belize. There were many people who, when when Ronald Reagan ran in 80, thought that he was going to do all these terrible things. Did in a sense that whether it's tax cuts or supply side economics or the defense buildup, the list goes on and on. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, all, all those terrible things. Well, it's interesting how much things. how people went crazy when he fired the air traffic controllers. But yeah, sure. Could Reagan? Can you? Could if you were standing up in front of an audience of a thousand people 
and you've done a lot of lectures and taught classes. What would be the most convincing case that you could make for the Reagan way of doing things? They broke the law. They broke the law. It was against the law for them to go out on strike and endanger the, the, past, the nation's travelers. You're talking uh, about the air traffic controllers. Yes, the air traffic controllers. They already had a sizable salary increase. And then they wanted to they wanted something even more egregious. And they said, no, if we don't get it, we're going on strike. And the government said, no, you just got a pay raise. You know, we're in the midst of a recession. You just got a 25% pay raise. So if you go on strike, you will break the law. And you will, so you will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And you will never be an air traffic controller again. That's what Reagan did. He, he was protecting the American people. In more than one book, and you correct me if my memory is faulty, but I've read that Reagan, President Reagan's termination of the air traffic controllers due to their illegal strike made a significant impression That's true. upon the Soviets. Like, yes. uh-oh, this guy's different. Yes. George Schultz said that. George Schultz, who was... Nixon's second Secretary of State, who was unlike Al Haig. <laughs> Al Haig, if you remember, had an ego the size of uh, Manhattan. And he, he tried to pull this on Reagan all the time. Reagan, one, one time he wrote in his diaries, just, the, the day he fired Al Haig, and Reagan wrote in his diaries said that the only thing we, di- we disagreed on was who was president. but george schultz was a terrific secretary of state and george schultz is the one who said that the the air traffic control strike and reagan's handling had a big impact on the soviet union not only for the way he treated labor of course you know the soviets prided themselves on being you know a labor state and uh the workers paradise and all that all those other lives but how he manfully handled it he didn't negotiate. He didn't cry. He didn't cry into his handkerchief. He didn't. He didn't sob or fret. He said, "You're fired. Get out." And uh, that that scared the hell out of the Soviets. It's interesting when you you mentioned George Schultz. You know, I had lunch. I went to summer school at Georgetown University, and right. for that intercollegiate studies institute program. Sure, sure. Back in summer of '93. Excellent program. It was it was, a, it was a wonderful, wonderful time, and I have to admit that I, the highlight is being able to walk up and down the Exorcist stairs every day yeah. to get to, to get to the Blue Line. Anyway, you know, I uh, doubt anybody remembers that anymore. Every time I drove past that on Key Bridge, and then mm-hmm. on the road that goes up the, the what, New Mexico Avenue goes yeah, up to like AU, that. I would po- point out to friends and say, "You know those stairs? Those are the Exorcist stairs," and they would, you know. You know, say be impressed or whatever. But I doubt <laughs> anybody even knows it anymore. <laughs> Is it how much the right, for lack of a better term, and I hate to say hard right because that's usually a, a progressive yeah. or left wing pejorative. Yeah, but I remember is. having lunch one on one with a significant conservative leader named Howard Phillips, <laughs> who who I'm sure you know. Howie. So this is the summer of 93, and he went on a philippic about because he was the one who publicly called uh, Reagan a useful Useful idiot idiot. for Kremlin propaganda or something like that. Yeah. How did Reagan lose those those harder Paul Weirich and some of the other harder or more conservative people? And in the end, did he have to in order to get what he wanted from the Soviets? I was there at the press conference. When Howard Phillips 
said that it was about the 80, 1987, the, the, uh, I can't think of it now. The start treaty or the, no, it wasn't start. It was, uh, it was, it was anyway, it was a a treaty between Reagan and Gorbachev that Reagan ended up signing. INF. INF treaty. Thank you. Yes. INF treaty. Howie Phillips was always a pain to Reagan. Reagan said so in his diaries. And uh, how he was a friend of mine, I disagreed with him on many things. I think he he, he was a a dark side to conservatism that he embraced, which was rejected by most logical conservatives. You know, there there are a hundred different forms of conservatism. There's there's everything from uh, Descartes, I think, before, therefore I am, to uh, Kissingerism, which I wouldn't even say is conservatism. But all along the way, uh, Robert, there are many different forms of conservatism, and how he was was part of the the, the darker side. And I'm trying to think, uh, maybe I wouldn't say John John Locke in his later years, when he wrote his anti-religious treatise, was uh, was in his early years he was magnificent, uh, but in his later years when he was writing anti-Christian treatises, that's when he turned to the dark side and actually you know was. You know, he said something awful about George Washington's death. He said, "You know, it's a, it's a, that it was glad, it was good that George Washington had died. That's how bad, bad he had turned." Um, and as a matter of fact, was practically evicted from the United States and lived out his, the rest of his life in uh, England. And you know, nobody can find his bones. Nobody knows where he's buried. Nobody knows whatever happened to him. So, so pain was over there. Uh, mm-hmm. In his later years, along with Howie Phillips and other while Paul Ryerk and others, they misinterpreted American conservatism as being about control. And America, true American conservatism is about anti-control. Uh, we're we're actually very uncomfortable with power. We don't like power. We like revol- we, we like revolution, intellectual revolutions, peaceful revolutions, uh, but we don't embrace uh, uh, the the type of conservatism. That that uh, that Payne or, or or Howie Phillips or Richard Vigory or Paul Weirich embraced. It also is about it was about simple publicity. I was there at that press conference. David Keene was a Washington troublemaker mm-hmm. uh, and access seller, and Richard Vigory was was a direct mail maestro who's a good guy. And I played poker with Richard a million times. Wonderful, wonderful person, but. He he wanted to keep things churned up because it was good for direct mail fundraising. That was why uh, he did it. So they it didn't have any lasting effect there that press conference or what they said about you know long about the same time Nixon and Kissinger in ironies and ironies wrote a speech wrote a op ed denouncing the IMF treaty. Uh, you know Nixon with crocodile tears running down his face after he made all the deals with the Soviets and then he denounces IMF uh, and, and Kissinger, you know, the uber neoconservative, you know, the, the, the one who once said is that, uh, that, that we were, uh, that the Soviets were Sparta and we were um, Athens, Athens. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And his job was to bring us in for a safe second place, bring us in the landing for a safe second place. You know, of course, he didn't know his history very well because actually Athens defeated Sparta uh, in the 300 years war. But uh, he didn't know his history very well. But, uh, but you know, that tells you his mindset. 
his mindset. He was the author of the of uh, the, the Warsaw Pact Treaty, which ceded all of the Warsaw Pact nations with the stroke of a pen, stroke of a pen to the Soviet Union. So anyway, anyway, there was there was a lot of strangeness going on at the time. I witnessed it. Uh, I, I spoke out against it. Uh, I Reagan was of course right about the IMF Treaty. Uh, it was certified. We, we did have, uh, you know, nuclear missiles withdrawn from the Soviet Union, withdrawn from the West, and it led to a more peaceful world. And what's wrong with that? Thomas Paine, uh, you were talking about him earlier with Washington, accused Washington of having no principles. Did you yes, abandon your principles or did you ever have any? Yes, that's right. Yeah, good. Bravo. Bravo. Yes, he said that. That's it. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest is author and historian Craig Shirley. He's also a public relations professional and a winning Republican strategist who has written so many incredible books about the Reagan revolution and that time in history. I want to ask you, please, just a few more questions, because I do want to get to your World War II Uh, books. As long as you want to go, Robert, I'm enjoying this so immensely. That's very kind. We're enjoying it. It's a good conversation. Yes, it Uh, is. One of one of I like the uh, British bulldog you have, by the way. <laughs> well, in my in my red, uh, well, I've done some commentary here for local TV. Uh, my graduate degree is in medieval history, medieval British history, and so when the Queen died, I've done a few Zoom interviews. So I thought I'd put the bulldog in the red telephone behind yeah, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I see it now. Yeah, I see the red telephone. Sure. Are there Very other? Nice. Are there other? books and authors on Ronald Reagan or the Reagan presidency that you would recommend? Uh, a Pope and the President by oh, John Sullivan. Paul Kingor. Paul, oh, John Sullivan wrote the one with about Thatcher. About, and, about Thatcher right. and me. Reagan. Yeah, John Forgive Thatcher me. wrote that. Yes. Um, so that's a good book also. And then, of course, there is uh, Reagan's uh, Life and Letters by um, uh, Annalise and Marty Anderson. Annalise is, is still alive, thank God. Um, Marty passed away a couple of years ago, uh, and Karen Skinner. They wrote several books about Reagan's writings, and then they wrote Reagan Path to Victory about his, uh, about his uh, radio addresses, which is it's a must read. It tells you a lot about the 1970s. Um, Luke Cannon's books, of course. Luke Cannon is a good friend of mine. And uh, he's written a number of very, very good. Oh, it's interesting. I'll tell you what's interesting, Robert, is that Lou, for the most of his life, was a was a garden variety left wing Democrat. And he wrote his books about Reagan because he'd been covering Reagan for years, going back to when he was governor. And he wrote his books. that were pretty harsh, pretty tough on Reagan. And reviewers noted it. And then along about the time Reagan announced the Alzheimer's, but before he passed away, Lou rewrote the books and they, they were reissued and it was, they were much more favorable, kindly, tenderly toward Ronald Reagan. And I remember one instant. Lou went from being a harsh anti-Reaganite to being 
all Reaganite. And as a matter of fact, he was with a panel with a panel on uh, the Reagan Library hosted a panel a couple of years ago. It was myself and Peggy Noonan and a couple of others, uh, Steve Hayward and Lou. Hmm. And uh, this was after Ru- Lou had rewritten his books. And now he was a confirmed Reaganite. Whereas, whereas just a couple of years before, he was confirmed anti Reaganite. So mm-hmm. I, that tells you a lot. I remember, uh, is it 92? In 1992, I think there was all the discussion about then Governor Bill Clinton being a draft dodger. Yes. And, and a lot of people were defending Clinton by saying that Ronald Reagan was a bigger draft dodger and Lou Cannon came out of nowhere and just hit those people right between the eyes. Yes, 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 yes. I remember that. It was well done. It was extremely well done. And just for the people who are watching today or viewing and listening today is that Reagan tried for active duty three times in World War II and three times he was turned away because he had the worst eyesight you can imagine. He had something like 2,700. When he was a small boy, he thought the world was blurry. He really thought the world was blurry until one day in his parents' car, he absentmindedly picked up his mother's glasses and put them on. And they had roughly the same uh, uh, eyesight anyway. And he discovered that trees weren't just a green blob. They actually had leaves. Uh, and the grass wasn't just a gr- was massive uh, green blob you know, that they had actual shoots and things. So his eyesight was so bad, Army tested him, of course, and he was rejected three times. So that's why he went into the uh, movie production corps, uh, making uh, training films and things like that. His eyesight was so bad, he couldn't make out a tank if it was more than seven feet from him. If If it was eight feet from him, he couldn't make it out. He couldn't make it out that it was an actual <laughs> weapon of destruction. That's how bad his eyesight was. He tried to get in, whereas Bill Clinton tried everything to get out. There was a local Indianapolis or Indiana-based writer, and you've talked to him, actually. I'm going to mention his name here in a second. It's Adam Wren. Yes. And I just sure. sat down with him not long ago. We were talking about various things, and I told him you were coming on the podcast, and he sent me this terrific article that he wrote about the 1976 Republican convention in which <laughs> he interviewed most, if not all of the major players, major players, 1976 Ronald Reagan runs against incumbent president, Gerald Ford. Uh, it's somewhat Ford kind of has it at the beginning. And then Reagan comes on strong. Please correct me if I, that's incorrect, no, but right. then it gets really rocking and rolling at the convention, which I think was in Kansas city in 76 Kansas city in 1976. And Reagan comes a hell of a lot closer to Kansas City, Missouri, (laughs) Kansas City, Missouri comes a hell of a lot more close to snatching the nomination than you could have predicted a year before. Yes. Uh, Yes. Talk a little bit about that convention and why that convention is so it's such a watershed in American political history because we've never had a convention like it since. No, never. Um, It is the first time Teddy Roosevelt challenged. Uh, Robert uh, uh, William Howard Taft for the nomination in uh, 1916 and came astonishingly close. Uh, Taft only won in the end because he controlled the levers of power at the convention. Uh, and of course, then, as we all know, Teddy Roosevelt went on to create the Bull Moose Party, which actually performed better 
than uh, than uh, Taft did in the fall election, but cost the <laughs> Republicans the presidency, and Wilson was elected. Uh, but but it, but it, so it's the closest contest we've had since that since 1916. Uh, it came down to, uh, depending on you how you counted, it came down to a, uh, about 80 delegate votes. 80 delegate votes, actually 40, because you, if you flip 40, then one side goes down by 40, the other side goes up by 40, and Reagan might might have well been the nominee in, in 1976, uh, had it not been for uh, Mississippi flipping uh, oddly, 30 delegates right there. Uh, and Duplicitously. Had huge, uh, what's that? Duplicitously. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, the chairman uh, of the committee, um, whose name escapes me. <laughs> I'm having a lot of senior moments today. I beg your pardon. I'll think of it in a second because I, I write about him extensively. Uh, he, he he betrayed Reagan. He, he said Reagan was going to support him. And then in the end, he supported Gerald Ford. And shenanigans in about five uh, delegations, including New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Illinois, where... Uh, Several, probably 20, 30, 40 delegates uh, were delivered to Ford, which should have gone to Ronald Reagan. You know, it's not like delegate counting today. There's, there wasn't the meticulous counting then that there is now. So Reagan, he left the convention convinced that the nomination was stolen from him. And who's to say that he wasn't uh, correct? Uh, but it was it was interesting. It was my wife was actually there. She was there as a uh, young, my wife was very, as, as a young, uh, they called presidentials. They were young Ford supporters. Whenever, whenever Ford would show up at a public location, they'd cheer him on. So my wife was a uh, Ford supporter in 1976. I later uh, educated her very, very quickly, and she loves Ronald Reagan now. Uh, she loves let's, Ronald Reagan. Let's talk but about But I'll tell you, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we went to uh, Ford's funeral. And we saw Susan Ford there. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 tu- I turned to Susan. I said, my wife, Serene, here was a presidential in 1976. And Susan got so emotional about that. It was such brought back such a happy memory for her of these kids all rooting for her father. You know, she, I think she was really. Oh, I believe it. I believe yeah. it. Yeah. You know, but if you had if you had told if I had told Craig Shirley on August 10th 1974 that six years and change and a few months later that ronald reagan a republican would be elected president with 489 electoral votes six years after richard nixon a republican resigned the presidency due to watergate you would have said i would have said ridiculous the republican party is on his deathbed uh after after uh watergate cleared out and the watergate elections cleared out a whole generation of republicans and all those republicans had to resign nixon spiro agnew uh all, all sorts of white house aides the republican party was really bereft of operatives like uh your friend who you just interviewed and a lot of others coming up for coming in 1976 the reagan campaign was a children's crusade. There were a lot of people there who had never worked in national politics before. There, there were junior, there were junior varsity players. There were, there were, there were volunteers. Uh, they, they, they were 
in in over their heads, but they had no choice. Uh, and Reagan does this astonishing thing. He comes within 80 delegate votes and he gives one of the most significant campaign speeches in American history. He does it. It's extemporaneous speech. You got to look at it sometime. And is it and, a good thing that he lost in 76 in your view? If you I, look back, no, I, I know a lot of people say 76 got him ready for 1980, but I think in 1976, Reagan was in top form. I mean, really in top form as far as uh, being a, a, a politician and being a, a public speaker and all that. And he may well have cut into Jimmy Carter's cotton South and take, you know, the, the big, Ford lost because he lost Ohio, 4 million votes mm-hmm. cast, and he lost by 7,000 votes. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, is the headquarters of the Teamsters who had endorsed Jimmy Carter that year. <laughs> so, you, you, no, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you do, you oh, add my. two and two, and you figure out what it comes out to, right? Uh, he loses Texas narrowly. He loses Mississippi narrowly. He loses Ohio narrowly. You know, and I, I think Reagan would have taken those votes. And also, you know, Ford, remember, made a hash of yeah. the debates. Yeah. And Reagan would have would not have done that. Reagan would have not performed badly as, as Ford did in the, in, in the second uh, presidential debate. Mm-hmm. Just totaling up uh, how Reagan was such a superior campaigner, uh, how these states were stolen from him. The issue cluster in 1976 was was. All Reagan's uh, Reagan was an outsider and a populist. And that's what the people wanted in 1976. Reagan would have beaten Carter. Okay. So let's fast forward a few years. Cause I've read several books on the 1980 election. Yours obviously being one of them. It's terrific. I really enjoyed the Jack German, Jules Whitcover book on the yes. 1980 election. Blue smoke, blue smoke and Blue smoke and mirrors. It's a very good book. Yes. So harsh. Wait, <laughs> they're so cynical, though. The, their book on the 1988 election is about the most cynical thing I've ever read about politics. Uh, anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. Wake us I when mean, it's over. I, Put it this way. The title of the book them, is listen, Wake Us, wake uh, us Jules, When It's Over. Jules and uh, Jack were good friends of mine. I was, but he, they were left wingers. I used to play poker with them all the time. But they were they were intractable liberals. They just couldn't <laughs> they couldn't look past their nose. I've read several they, of Whitcover's they books. Hate, they both hated Reagan. Both hated Reagan. <laughs> their book, uh, Whitcover's book on uh, the relationship Marathon. between Nixon and Agnew is one of my favorite strange bedfellows. Yes, it's that was terrific. Good. And, and, and his, also his book, Marathon on 1976, is terrific. It's a very, very good book. So let me ask you a question that that's posited sure. by historians. Uh, we all know that the economy was in terrible shape in 1980. You know, we did have a little bit of uh, a patriotic uh, adrenaline when the Americans beat these Soviets four to three in the Olympics on Washington's yeah. birthday yeah. in 1980. Magnificent. But if Jimmy Carter's rescue effort succeeds, despite everything else that's going wrong with the economy, do you believe, as a Reagan scholar, he would have won in 80 if he had figured out a way to get the hostages out of Iran? No, no, it wasn't enough. You know, we still had high inflation. We had high gasoline. We had high employment, unemployment. We had uh, the Soviets. High interest were winning rates. The, high interest rates. The Soviets were winning on the world stage. Everything was running against Jimmy Carter. And getting the hostages out 
uh, may have given him a, a, an extra boost in the numbers, but Reagan would have still won in the final analysis. Instead of being, you know, 51 to 40, which is what it was, and 7 million votes, it would have been, you know, 50 to uh, 50 to 45 uh, and 5 million votes. And maybe Anderson doesn't run. Who knows? I mean, that's the what ifs. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you a quick question. I found this interesting. I remember reading a book on President Reagan. And in the book, quoted is James Baker, who was his chief of staff and then later Secretary of the Treasury and then became Secretary of State under President George H.W. Bush. And Baker, when asked how Reagan treated him, said he treated us all the same, like hired help. That's a direct quote. Yeah. I interviewed governor and now president of Purdue, Mitch Daniels. And I'd love your thoughts on Governor Daniels when you're done with this answer. And he smiled and said, I know exactly what Jim means. So what exactly does Jim mean? It means that with few exceptions, like Lynn Knopfsinger and Ed Meese, Reagan kept the staff at arm's length. Reagan understood management, which Carter never understood. You know, Carter was you know, scheduling, uh, you know, uh, times on the White House tennis courts uh, instead of being president of the United States. Reagan understood the presidency to be a, a magnificent bully pulpit and, and not a managerial concern. His job was to communicate big thoughts. That is really, you think about it, Robert, the, the biggest, most important responsibility of the president is to communicate good ideas, really. Yeah, you can sign legislation and stuff like that. But really, truly, is that the Constitution is pretty silent about the executive authority of the president of the United States. They were, don't forget, these men were terrified after King George II and King George III. And they didn't want to institute the presidency with too much power. But they left They left it, so they were kind of silent about it. Uh, but what was left unspoken was, was how much the president could affect the America and the world from the bully pulpit. And so Reagan had things on his mind. You know, you look at his letters, you look at his writings, you look at his speeches, you look at his radio broadcasts. He wasn't thinking about, uh, you know, Jim Baker needs a haircut today. Uh, he was thinking about how can I uh, expand freedom in the world? How can I expand freedom in the United States? How can I push back uh, on big government. You know, you look at all of his speeches. How can I increase the power of the individual? How many times in his speeches he uses the, the term individual uh, in terms of more, more freedom and uh, less bullying authority uh, of the federal government? So Reagan was that way. I know, you know my interaction with Reagan was, was, was many times. It was always warm. It was always cordial. But I wasn't on his. I, I was on the. I was on the campaign staff, but I was never on the White House staff. Not really, except for the uh, White House conference on small business. But I never interacted with Reagan on that. But I, I understand what what Jim means. I understand what Dan, what uh, what Mitch says uh, about it is that he viewed them as they were part of the executive support group, and they had certain jobs to fulfill. And we're supposed to do these things. We're not supposed to sit around and talk about our golf game. Uh, so I understand completely what Jim says. But there were certain people that Reagan was really warm and friendly with. One was Frank. One was Lynn Knopfsinger. 
another was Ed Meese, a couple of California people. folks. Yes, California folks. That's right. Yeah. We have some connections here to the Reagan administration here in Indiana. Lou Gehrig, who's a public relations guru sure, here I in Indianapolis. Lou. Uh, Peter Rustoven, who I think was a lawyer in the um, yeah, and he's a, a, a terrific writer too. Yes, he, he is a he, very good writer. Yes, and he worked on the AD uh, convention uh, newsletter. And then uh, Mitch Daniels, who's president yes. of Purdue and governor of Indiana yes. for two terms. Um, one of the things that happens when when presidents, governors, mayors—in my case, because I worked for the mayor of Indianapolis—it's um, really a springboard to the rest of your life in ways that you're not really sure when you take the gigs. But in the case of Ronald Reagan, when you look at who came out of his administration and what their accomplishments were afterwards, that's really one of his biggest legacies. Yes. Yes. It was like a a farm team for a baseball, for for a major league baseball team. The, The farm team came out of the Reagan administration, you know, the, uh, even now, even today, it's just that Adam Laxalt's running in Nevada, and he's the grandson of Paul Laxalt, who was Ronald Reagan's best friend. I knew Paul Laxalt very well. Uh, and you've got a lot of uh, former Reaganites running for office all around the country. Uh, is that you, you've got sheepers? I can, you know, what is the Reagan alumni directory? Uh, is a, a living document, you know, it's a list of uh, Reagan. <laughs> and, and it's living because it keeps growing, you know, and, and this is, you know, how many years after he left? He left in 1989. So so it's what, 30 some odd years he left office and uh, probably 30 years since he passed, 30, 25 years since he passed away. And everybody wants to be associated with Reagan. You know, the Carter Alumni Directory, uh, if it exists, is a very tiny little the very tiny little document and the the bush quail alumni directory is a very tiny little document but the reagan alumni directory is quite it's quite extensive i'm not the most conservative republican in this world i'm kind of what you would call perhaps an urban republican <laughs> which is reflective of of my upbringing and uh, military service before and after being born and raised here in indianapolis but i will say that when I'm asked that, why are you a Republican? I usually just kind of chuckle, shrug my shoulders and say, Ronald Reagan. That's a good of answer is any, Robert. That's good as, you know, if you wanted to answer it uh, at another level, you you would say, uh, I think I'm logical. Uh, is well, whether it's Kennedy or whether it's Reagan or I mean, let's give credit where credit's due. I mean, Clinton or Barack Obama. Right. I mean, you create these situations where successful presidencies or presidencies because you're so prominent, you can put your stamp, your intellectual stamp and personality on a generation of yep. of would be voters and future yep. voters. That's right. You know, that's why they call them Reagan Democrats or uh, or, you know, why Kennedy is so revered, why the new great, the new frontier is so uh, revered. Why obviously Franklin Roosevelt. Huh? Obviously, excuse me, obviously Franklin yeah, Roosevelt. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that brings up a good point. John Patrick Diggins, who was an old friend of mine, he wrote, he was in many ways the historian of the American left in the 1960s. He wrote books on the environmental movement and the women's movement and civil rights. But his last book 
Uh, and, and he was at Berkeley doing battle with Reagan in the 60s over the free speech movement, the whole thing. His last book was called Ronald Reagan, Fate, Freedom, and the Making of History. And in this book, this college professor says that Reagan is one of our four greatest presidents. Because like Washington, Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt, he also freed or saved many, many people. And he thought that was the most, most important criteria uh, for an American president. Does it, you know, at the end of the day, does he, does he, in our modern interpretation of the presidency, you know, did Herbert Hoover save a lot of people? And eh, maybe not. You know, <laughs> so uh, let's do a counterfactual real quick. Cause I want to, I want to stick on that point. And we're talking with Craig Shirley here on the leaders and legends podcast. Mr. Shirley is an author and historian, particularly of the Reagan years. Uh, but he's also written a couple books on World War II, and I, we have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure I get to those for sure. But let's say Jimmy Carter wins re-election in 80, is seceded at least for one term by Walter Mondale, his vice president. Are we still fighting the Cold War in 2022, or what sure. year does it end? Yeah, no, they were still prop up. Carter did view Soviets as his kissing cousins, as he is a Democrat. He viewed the Soviets as his kissing cousin. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe they, you know, they 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 shouldn't have uh, psychological uh, hospitals, or you know, they shouldn't beat so many people, stuff like that. But we can overlook overlook that for the bigger goal of world collectivism. We can overlook that. They will reform them later. Uh, so yes, the Cold War would have continued, and as a matter of fact, there would not have been a Cold War because Carter would have actually asked to the Soviets. So look, he did acquiesce. Look, he did. We know the the history is is proven. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan. He did nothing. Soviets put uh, nuclear powered nuclear uh, tipped uh, submarines with nuclear tipped missiles. He put them into uh, into Cuba, and Carter did nothing. Time after time after time, Carter was challenged by by the left of the Soviet Union and did nothing to resist. Is it is it fair to give President Carter credit, however, for because I remember he got booed for saying all these things in the 1980 Democratic Convention for to give President Carter some credit for initiating the arms buildup, reinvesting in the military towards the end of his term, restarting the registration for the draft, that sort of thing. So is that, that was is that judicious or is that That's, just me that trying political. to be fair? Don't forget, this was a man who went to Notre Dame University and gave the commencement speech in 1977. And he said, quote, we have to get over our inordinate fear of communism, close quote. Now, what kind of president talks like that, except for one who is sympathetic to collectivism to the Soviets and wants to slobber over the Soviets and get down and be the useful idiot? Uh, that, that Lennon spoke of. Let's pivot a little bit in the few minutes we have remaining. Um, I've had several World War II authors on the podcast. Uh, I'm a big fan of the time period. Most everyone is. I, one of the absolute best books I have ever read on any subject is Victor Davis Hanson's book, The Second World Wars. Just completely opened my mind to so many things. I'm like, how the hell do I not know this? I've read so much about this time marvelous, period. Marvelous. It's terrific. Anyway, yes. you've uh, Craig Shirley has written two books on World War II, December 1941, 31 Days That Changed America and Saved the World, 
in your book that came out this year in 2022, April 1945, The Hinge of History. I love the Churchillian title, Churchillian-esque title. Is that the hell you'd say it? Sure. Of your April 45 book. A, why did you decide to uh, get into this period of history and why write these bookend, from the American point of view almost, bookend titles? Well, if you go back, um, is that my interest in World War II is acute because of my family. Every Sunday after church, we would gather at my grandmother's house or my mother's house and have a roast or a turkey or a chicken or something, you know, Sunday dinner. And around the table were uh, grandmothers and grandfathers and uh, aunts and uncles and my my parents and things like that. And invariably, the conversation always turned to the war, as in my grandfather might say, well, I didn't, I bought that sale before the war, but it didn't sell until after the war, which, of course, made sense because Detroit wasn't producing new cars anyway during the, during the World War II. Uh, or somebody would talk about mixing the oil butter with, with the dye, uh, which was, you know, something that was, the kids had to do was, was to stir up oil butter with or with dye yellow dye to make it look more palatable even though it tasted like crap uh you know uh and they talk about rationing and they talk about this and everybody made some sort of sacrifice my grandfather tried three times to enlist and three times he was turned away because he was blind as a bat like reagan uh uh they would say to him say ellsworth you're blind as a bat you got four dependents. You're 42 years old. We're not that desperate. So he became a civil defense block captain. Uh, my grandmother, both my grandmothers were Rosie the Riveters. One was a bomb inspector. And she never, she didn't live long enough for me to ask her what a bomb inspector did. And I feel bad about that. The other one was a machine gun tester. She would, there was a factory in Syracuse. I can't they used to make, they make uh, lights uh, for uh, for tra- traffic lights. Uh, I can't think of the name of it. But for World War II, they made machine guns. And she would stand there on an assembly line. A machine gun would come down the line. She'd pick it up and she'd test fire it. <laughs> put it down. And the next one would come down the conveyor belt. She'd pick it up, fire it, bum, 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 set it down. And so she was a Rosie the Riveter. Uh, my father was a Boy Scout, was a 12, 13-year-old Boy Scout. And the government used the Boy Scouts to um, distribute promotional posters to churches and bars and grocery stores and restaurants. So he pinned up these posters, you know, loose lip sync ships and uh, cautionary tales about medicine and about dangerous women and with VD and things like that. And he, he put those up around uh stores and restaurants and uh churches and stuff in, in uh Syracuse, New York. My mother was then well, she was born 32, so she was eight or nine years old at the beginning of the war. And she's with us still, still with us, thank God. Uh and I once queried her about this because I thought victory guards were somewhat of a uh PR stunt by, <coughs> by the Roosevelt administration. She got indignant. She said, you know, I had a victory garden. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a fraud. Everybody I knew had a victory garden. It was victory gardens in backyards, small farms, on top of tenements, 
uh, is there Victory Gardens. And as a matter of fact, in 1944, Victory Gardens produced one quarter of all the vegetables consumed in America, which is astonishing. But we need to feed the Russian soldier, the British soldier, the American soldier. And so that's where we were sending all of our vegetables. It was overseas to feed the boys. And so we had to grow it at home. So, and of course, you know, there was also rubber drives and scrap drives and paper sure. drives and things like that. So my family was not unique. You know why? Because every family did this. But everybody, and of course, my, my uncle made the ultimate sacrifice. He was shot down and killed in the uh, Pacific on his 20th birthday in 1945. Shot down in his TVF One Avenger. Moment of silence there for him. That's for Barney Ellsworth Shirley. And it was on his 20th birthday. You titled your latest book, April 1945, The Hinge of History. Why did you choose April uh, as opposed to, say, August, which is when the atomic bombs were dropped or another month? I mean, you had some you have some consequential deaths, obviously, in April. You have Roosevelt who dies on April 12th. Hitler dies on kills himself on April 30th. But but why April and not another month? Because every day is a red letter day in in the news. There is something monumental happening every day in April 1945. It's a much overlooked month. You know, August would have been the uh, uh, would have been the obvious month, but so many people have written about August. So I, I looked at the, um, the calendar and I saw all these things happening in uh, April of 1945. Uh, big things and little things, but fun things like the fact that. Lou Gehrig's baseball trophies sold at auction for $1 a piece. Can you imagine that? Imagine <laughs> You're kidding. Millions they'd be worth today? With the <laughs> millions? His 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 uh, MVP trophy, uh, the American League, fetched $1. And his trophy, for, for his trophy he got for the day he said, I'm the greatest. I'm this is I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. I'm the luckiest man alive. And LaGuardia is there and Babe Ruth is there and all these old and current Yankees are there. Uh, and, and Yankee Stadium is jam-packed. And he gives this tear-jerker of a speech and he's given a, a, a plaque. And that plaque went for $1 <laughs> at auction. Uh, he had passed away, you know, about a year earlier, the, a year earlier, nineteen forty. But there's stuff in there, not only about baseball, but about the American home front, about rationing everything, gasoline rationing, meat rationing, vegetable rationing, uh, fruit rationing, everything you can imagine. Uh, there's a lot of lively stories about uh, actors and actresses, and and uh, how um, uh, Frank Sinatra. Uh, pierced his own eardrum with a uh, sewing needle to avoid military service. Uh, it's just, it's just scads of, of stuff like that, big and little. Uh, and of course, FDR dies. And, and FDR dying, Bob, do you go by Bob? You're Craig Shirley. You can call me what you like. Okay. Even though I guess I guess we should make some sort of airplane reference since your last name is Shirley. Yeah, that's good. Don't call me Shirley. Um, uh, yeah, never heard that before. <laughs> Robert. Um, 
it, it, I lost my train of thought. Now, what was I talking? You're about? talking about Roosevelt's death in oh, Warm Springs. And- it was monumental. It was it was huge. It's one of those things. Everybody can say. My mother remembers where she was when she was told Rose FDR died. Uh, it was the same thing with John Kennedy. It was the same thing with uh, with uh, September 11th. Uh, everybody who was alive knew where they were and knew what was going on when they were told Franklin Roosevelt had died. His funeral was uh, the pomp and circumstance was astonishing, and also, of course, you know, like flags around the world, like in Moscow, were lowered in half staff. Flags in Moscow were lowered in half staff. FDR was not just part of the big three with Churchill and Stalin. He was, in many ways, the president of the world, not just the president of the United States. He had to clothe and feed and house and supply the British soldier, the Brit- the, the Soviet soldier, the American soldier. He had to fight, fight a two-front war in Europe and in Japan. He had... He, he had it, you know, uh, allies of Hitler were or Hitler, German troops were all around him, and you know, in South America and all, in Italy and North Africa. So he had all these things going on, and of course, he had all of his children uh, and uh, his tense relationship with with uh, his wife. Uh, so he had these enormous, enormous things going on in his life and in his personal life and his professional life. And so when he died. It was uh, as if not just the president of the United States died, but it was the president of the world died. Uh, everybody, Bob Dole writes in his book about uh, soldiers in dugouts uh, in uh, in uh, Italy weeping in their in their in their trenches when they heard that uh, FDR died. We are talking with historian and author Craig Shirley. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. <laughs> Mr. Shirley, are you ready? They're easy, I promise. This, yeah. Okay. They're like uh, they're like a game show, right? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. One okay. or two may cause you to to pause for a second and give it some okay. thought. But uh, question number one: What was your first job? My first job was working at a, at a, a campground on Cape Cod in North Toro, the uh, 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 shoot, uh, Horton, Horton's campground. And I used to bike every morning 10 miles to the campground and then at 5 o'clock bike 10 miles back uh, on Route 6, which cuts right through the Cape. Uh, and I had the time of my life, I, but I was cleaning out uh, uh, to- toilets. I was uh, uh, picking up trash. I was working in a garden. I was painting a barn. I did all these things in the summer of 1973. And it was my first real job. You know, I had jobs before that, raking leaves and Mm -hmm, shoveling walks and stuff like that. But that was my first real job. And I had the time of my life. Question number two, what was your first concert? Three Dog Night. It may, I think it may have been my last concert, as a matter of fact. So, no, no, I went to no, I went to uh, the th- the Rolling Stones No Security uh, tour. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Uh, Catherine Drinker Bowden wrote Miracle in Philadelphia. Yeah, I have that book. It's terrific. It is wonderful. It is a, it is the best single book 
on the Constitution and what happened there in Philadelphia. And it's just terrific. It is terrific. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Philadelphia Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Those are very popular. I can just say those are popular answers. I'm sure, sure. they are. I'm sure they are. You, you know, but I, I could be cute and say, well, I'd like to be there at Ford's Theater, but I don't think I'd want to be there at Ford's Theater because uh, I, I couldn't stop Booth from pulling the trigger. If I could go there and stop Booth from pulling the trigger, then I'd choose uh, April 15th, 1865. All you had to do was convince Lincoln's bodyguard not to go have a drink or two downstairs. You wouldn't yes. even have you wouldn't have to stop Booth. Just stop yes. the drunk. Yeah. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record to discuss anything you want, whom would you choose? Johnny Carson. Living today. Oh, living today. Let me think, let me think, let me think. think. So many of my mentors and friends have passed away, Bill Buckley and others. Um, You know, somebody who I like very, very much uh, and I admire very, very much uh, and has been very good to me is George Will. I picked George Will. He was on our podcast and I promised him when he came on the podcast, when he agreed that I would talk about three things, I'd ask him questions about history baseball and mitch daniels how about that three things he admires absolutely you said nice things about uh, governor daniels before the podcast you've known yes. him for a long time i've known mitch since 1982 when he was with the republican senatorial committee and i was with the republican national committee so his success and everything he's achieved is no surprise to you, I'm sure. Oh, no, no, no. He was always a, a well, a very talented individual, very likable individual, very can do type of individual. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction. Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been author and historian Craig Shirley. Craig, thank you so much for your time. It was a terrific discussion. I really, really enjoy your books. Keep writing them. Thank you, Robert. Thank you so, so much. This was a lot of fun. And thank you, Chris. This was this was enjoyable. I hope I get, get the chance to come back on. Thank you. All right. Take care, fellas. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.